Now, last week we had uh, got back from our hiatus that we had uh, had for VBS, and we talked about last week how that the law has no effect on the promise of grace that God made to Abraham. We saw how that the covenant that was made uh, was not made between God and Abraham, but was made between God and himself, and that God included Abraham into that covenant by the means and way of a promise. And that is the very foundation and basis for our salvation. Hard to imagine the connection between, uh, oh, what would that be, some uh, 4,500 years ago, maybe even longer, uh, when this Syrian that God had led out of Ur of the Chaldees met with the Lord and saw a smoking uh, furnace or a uh, smoking lamp and a burning furnace uh, going before him. And that moment when you and I knelt out, knelt up in contrition uh, after having been born again by the grace of God, hard to imagine that there's a connection between those two. But you say, preacher, what is that connection? That connection is Jesus Christ. God had made the promise to himself and for Abraham that he would send a seed that would redeem mankind, that would make a way, that would thwart the efforts of the devil, destroy the works of the devil, as the book of 1 John says, uh, and that would redeem those that were under the curse of the law. You and I, if we have put our faith in Christ, then we have been blessed with faithful Abraham. We have been placed within that seed uh, which is Christ, and we have been included in that. Isn't that a beautiful truth? And as we read through the book of Galatians, Paul is taking a very systematic approach uh, to addressing the heresy of salvation by works. Uh, I'll say again that the entire premise of the book of Galatians is to show to us that salvation is by the grace of God, uh, that nothing can be added to it, uh, that it's only through God's grace and through faith in His Son that we can attain to uh, sonship with an almighty and thrice holy God. And as Paul has been systematically doing this, we've seen several things that he's shown us. He's shown us the example of Abraham, the history behind it. He's shown us the fallacy uh, behind salvation by works, why that was not feasible. He's shown us in the verses we looked at last week how that the law cannot intrude into this grace covenant that God has made with himself. But we come to a very natural question this week. And I want us to read a few verses, and I don't know, uh, I'm kind of, I'll be honest with you, I'm torn. Because we could either go on to chapter 4 after we're done tonight, uh, and maybe not get enough said about it, or we could just stay at the end of chapter 3 and say too much about it, amen. Uh, but maybe we'll hit it right somewhere in between. I want you to look with me at verse number 19. The Word of God says, Wherefore then serveth the law? It was added because of transgressions till the seed should come to whom the promise was made. And it was ordained by angels in the hand of a mediator. Now a mediator is not a mediator of one, but God is one. Is the law then against the promises of God? God forbid. For if there had been a law given which could have given life, verily righteousness should have been by the law. But the Scripture hath concluded all under sin, that the promise by faith of Jesus Christ might be given to them that believe. But before, the law, before faith came, we were kept under the law, shut up unto the faith which should afterwards be revealed. Wherefore the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ, that we might be justified by faith. 
But after that faith has come, we are no longer under a schoolmaster. For ye are all the children of God by faith in Jesus or in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. For there is neither Jew nor Greek, neither is there bond nor free. There is neither male nor female, for ye are all one in Christ Jesus. And if ye be Christ, then are ye Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. The question that sits before us this evening that the Word of God answers is found in verse number 19. Wherefore then serveth the law? If salvation is not by the law, if by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. If the promise that God gave to Abraham was completely exclusive of and apart from the law, uh, if when Christ saves us, He doesn't save us because of the law or uh, through our keeping of the law, uh, why then did God give the Old Testament law? Now, I'll go ahead and tell you that most people in this room could give at least one answer to that. But we'll find as we study tonight that there are many answers. I'm going to try to focus on three of them tonight uh, that are presented in the passage before us. And I have encompassed them in these three words, and they all start with G. You know, a preacher has to alliterate something or he don't know how to think right. So, uh, you know, I'm going to go ahead and give you these. The law was given for three basic purposes. One was to guilt us. Now, some of you would say, oh, preacher, you mean God is in the guilting business? No, but the law is in the guilting business. Do you know that you would have never come to Jesus Christ if you hadn't known that you were guilty before God? You would have never come to Him for salvation. I'll tell you the problem with uh, modern-day Christianity today is there are multitudes of folks that want a Savior, but they don't want to admit that they're a sinner. You'll never come to Jesus until you know you're a sinner. You have no reason to come to Jesus until you know you're a sinner. You may come to Him for a moral example, but that won't get you to heaven. Uh, you may come to Him as part of a cultural environment. Your family, uh, they're, you know, saved, or your grandparents, or uh, the mailman, or whoever, but that won't get you saved. The only way that you can come to Jesus and walk away saved is to come as a sinner in need of Jesus Christ. He said, I'm not come to call the righteous under repentance, but sinners. God's interested in sinners, and so we all had to be guilty before God. We all had to be made aware of our sinful condition. Let me give you a second one, and it's encompassed by the word guard. Uh, not only was the law given to guilt us, but the law was given to guard us. Now, some of you are saying, wait a minute, preacher, I'm a Gentile. Well, I am too, amen? Uh, I'm not, I don't have a Jewish bone in my body, not that I'm aware of, amen? I, I write down Appalachian American on my taxes. and uh, So, you know, I, I'm right there with you. But the law was given for the Jewish people that they might in some regard be morally guarded from the wickedness of the day that they lived in. You'll find as you study the Old Testament law uh, that it basically falls into two categories, that which is practical and that which is ceremonial. Or could we use the term civil and ceremonial? I'll give you an example where the Bible uh, tells the Jews that they're to make the hem of their garments of a certain uh, width and they're to make them of blue so that they might remember uh, you know, what God did the day uh, that He struck the man dead that was gathering sticks on the Sabbath. That's a ceremonial command that's given. 
that, uh, that blue hymn is not going to help anybody, but it serves as a reminder. Uh, it points to a certain truth. Whenever they would light incense and burn incense towards heaven, as was commanded in the law, that incense did not help anyone in a practical way, uh, but in a ceremonial way, in a figurative way, they were commanded to do this. Now, by the same token, we could go on the other side of the spectrum. The Bible uh, is very clear in its commands between uh, human beings and their dealings. If I have an ox and my ox uh, busts through your fence and kills one of your oxes, uh, then I've got to pay for you a new ox. Amen? That helps folks get along. That's the practical side of the Old Testament law. And in the vein of this practical realm, there were many laws that were given to help the children of Israel abstain uh, from the wickedness in the world that they lived in. So it was given to guard them. Let me give you one final one, and then we'll jump into our text. Uh, not only was it given to guilt them and given to guard them, but thankfully, and I can say praise the Lord to this truth, it was given to guide them. It was given to guide them to an awareness of their need of a Messiah. This was the chief purpose and chief function of the Old Testament law. And Paul is going to reveal these things to us. But notice the language that he gives. He says it was added, verse 19, because of transgressions. The book of Romans is very clear to us that sin existed before the law ever existed. I think sometimes that we think of sin in the sense of a breaking of a bunch of rules. And that is very true. Sin is the transgression of the law. And certainly when the law came, it became the transgression of the law in a very real and definite way. But understand that there's just some things. Now listen now, because the world doesn't like this, but this is true tonight. There are some things that just flat out turn the stomach of God. And it's not just wrong because we have a Bible. If we didn't have a Bible, it'd still be wrong. It's not just wrong because it hurts other people. It may hurt other people. Uh, but listen, there's some things that offend the holiness of an almighty God. And those things existed before the law ever existed. I've had people ask before about the, uh, in the Old Testament, the polygamy that went on. And there was a lot of polygamy that went on in the Old Testament. There's no question about that. You go through the Old Testament and you'll find kings that have, uh, you know, 30 wives and, uh, 57 concubines, amen. And, uh, you know, I just, I have trouble, you know, problems staying out of trouble with the one I got, amen. Couldn't imagine having that many. I don't know what I'd do. I guess I'd dig a hole and just hide in it. But, uh, you know, uh, you'll find that all through the Old Testament, though there was a time that God winked at it, and that doesn't mean God winked in the way that you and I might, uh, but it means that, that God, in a sense, He did not forgive it, He did not condone it, but He did not immediately drop His wrath and judgment upon it. You'll find this truth, that in the Old Testament, polygamy always led to heartache and headache. Go through the Bible, and you'll find that when Solomon had a bunch of wives, it was his wives that turned his heart away from God. Uh, you'll find, and some of you would say, well, preacher, now you're preaching against wives. And I'm not preaching against wives. I love wives so much I married one. Amen? Uh, you know, I, I'm not, I'm not anti-female up here today, but understand this, that even, uh, it was always even a heartbreak for the wives in the marriage as well. And you'll find that so many times in the Old Testament, always sorrow and heartache, jealousy, bitterness, all of these things. You just about won't find a single polygamistic uh, relationship in the Old Testament where there was not bitterness between the multiple wives. 
So this was sin even before it was ever defined or delineated as sin. It was still wrong. It still turned the stomach of God. still made Him angry. So the law did not come so that sin could exist. Sin already existed. Sin is independence from God. It is self-will. It is uh, the determination to do things in one's own way as opposed to the way of God. And when God created mankind, placed him in the Garden of Eden, uh, gave him every tree he could imagine that he could eat of, but pointed at one of them and said, don't eat of this tree. Sure enough, that was the one that mankind headed for. And there, mankind fell into sin. And, uh, you know, the Bible even uses that terminology where it says that uh, uh, the woman uh, was deceived, and it speaks about the transgression there, even in the garden. And so, as we speak of transgression, and that word transgression basically means the breaking of a rule, uh, sin existed before the law ever existed, but sin was given for the purpose of defining and determining in the viewpoint and in the mind of man just what God considered sin to be. Could you imagine how daunting it must have felt for the nation of Israel? Here they had left Egypt, they had journeyed through the Red Sea, and they had already many times over offended God. And, you know, I don't know if they're anything like me. Sometimes you just feel like you're in the doghouse all the time. You ever feel like it? I don't mean in your marriage. Everybody okay? Everybody relaxed? I hope so. It's in marriage counseling, amen? Calm down. I'm not going to make you all start writing things you like about one another. Don't get nervous. But, uh, you know, <laughs> sometimes in my spiritual walk I feel that way. And I know I'm a justified child of God. I'm aware of that. I understand that God sees me. Uh, and he sees the person of Jesus Christ. But I am still keenly aware uh, that my fellowship can be hindered and hurt by my sin, by my iniquity, by my unrighteousness. And I go through periods of my life, and you probably do too, where you just feel like you're always in the doghouse with the Lord. feel like you can't pray about anything new for confessing all the sins that you've got to confess before. And surely the nation of Israel felt this way. Uh, but then here they come to Sinai. And God thunders, and the mountain smokes, and, and is on fire, and God issues forth the law. And it's not just ten commandments, but over six hundred commandments. Could you imagine the distraughtness in their hearts? They had agreed to keep those laws, if you remember. Uh, whenever uh, Moses said to him, the Lord said to Moses, said, set a barrier around this uh, mountain. Don't let them break through and touch the mountain, or else they'll die. And as he began to establish that covenant with them, the children of Israel said, All things that the Lord commanded us to do, we will do. And then God hands down over 600 commandments. And surely they were keenly aware that they were sinners. Surely it became real to them just how holy that God is. The law was given to show us how sinful sin is. To show us how holy God's holiness is. I mean, listen, God is so much more holy than the holiness that the world uh, tries to peddle to us in modern Christianity. We can't even fathom how holy that God is. We can't fathom how He hates sin. We can't fathom how righteous He truly is. But the law was given to help us understand how holy He was. One of the chief uh, charges that uh, infidels and atheists always level against the Bible is how cruel God is in the Old Testament. And they'll say, well, you know, God say that, you know, a boy that was rebellious, he, he ought to be stoned to death. How awful, how terrible, how, how, how horrible that is. And you ask them, why is that terrible? And they say, well, because we're all rebellious. And what they're saying is this. They're saying, why can't God's holiness be a little bit more like my sinfulness? 
Why can't God just lower things a little bit to be a little bit more like me? And much of the contemporary movement in the day that we live in is vested in trying to make God more like us. When the reality is this, He's not anything like us. His ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. The reason that God was vindicated in striking a a man dead for gathering sticks on the Sabbath day was because of just how holy he was. Just how serious of an offense it was to disobey the distinct and direct command of God. And the law was given to teach us that. You go through the Old Testament and you'll find out that God has a lot of standards and a lot of rules about some things. But you'll find out this truth as well, that you and I cannot keep those laws. It was given for the purpose that we might become guilty. The book of Romans says that the law was given, that the whole world would become guilty before God, that every mouth may be stopped. And so the law was given for this purpose to show us what sin truly is. Why was that necessary? Well, look what it says, till the seed should come to whom the promise was made. Now, why was it that God could not just let us work on credit? Do you understand what I mean? There had to be a law given. Transgressions had to be defined because the seed should, uh, could not come just yet. Why was that necessary? We find the truth of it in chapter or in, uh, verse number 22, but the Scripture hath concluded all under sin that the promise by faith of Jesus Christ might be given to them that believe. But before faith came, we were kept under the law, shut up under the faith which should afterwards be revealed. It's not speaking of our capacity to faith when it says that. Our capacity of faith is very readily revealed. We're aware of whether we can believe God or not. That's speaking, just as we've talked about in chapter 2, of the faith of Jesus Christ. You see, the only way, and I'm trying not to get ahead and teach ahead of myself tonight, uh, but the only way that we could stand justified before God was to be placed within that seed. That seed had to come and die on the cross of Calvary. And until that time should come, God had to define what sin was so that we would know what it is, know how holy He is, know how wretched we ourselves are. Notice what He says. He said, And it was ordained by the hand by angels in the hand of a mediator. That mediator being spoken of is Moses. It says now a mediator is not a mediator of one, but God is one. So why is Paul saying this? He's again driving a wedge in between the covenant of grace and the giving of the law. Because you understand that a mediator, you know what a mediator is. Today we have a, uh, a, a filthy word that we don't use except in, you know, in, in uh, the crudest and basest of company, and it's the word lawyer. Amen. And uh, that, that's kind of what a mediator is. It's someone that goes between, mediates a situation uh, between two people. And Moses, as this mediator, as this go-between, uh, the Bible tells us that uh, God did not speak directly with the nation of Israel there at Sinai, but He spoke with Moses and to Moses. And as He spoke to Moses, Moses took His Word, gave it unto the children of Israel. The children of Israel said, we'll do everything that He commands. And the Bible tells us that an offering was given and that uh, blood was shed, and that a piece of hyssop was dipped in it. Moses sprinkled uh, the book of the law and sprinkled the children of Israel to show that death was the penalty uh, for the breaking of that law. But Moses was the go-between. Now, why has Paul said this? Because he's gone to great lengths to show us that the covenant of grace was made between God and himself. He's showing us how different this covenant of grace is and this covenant of the law 
is he's saying Moses, obviously, uh, the law was not intruding in the covenant of grace, because if it was, there'd be no need for a mediator. God is one. God, as he makes a promise to himself, he doesn't need any man to mediate that promise, but a mediator is there to go between two separate parties. So he says that uh, the mediator uh, is not a mediator of one, but God is one. Look at verse 21. Is the law then against the promises of God? God forbid. Now, what he is saying here is this. It's, in fact, I'll read this. It's summarized here. For if there had been a law given which could have given life, verily, verily righteousness should have been by the law. These, these are sort of parenthetical statements that God is making here. And what he is saying is this. Uh, is the picture portrayed before us thus, that God made a promise and salvation could be obtained by grace through that promise, but then the law comes in and messes things up by showing us that we are sinners. And Paul says, no, the law is not against the promises of God, but it works in concert with this promise. Because there was no chance, no possibility, of you or I being able to stand righteous in our own good works before God anyway. You see, this is something we have to have driven into our very deepest uh, part of our mind, that there is no capacity for us to live in perfection. There are many denominations today that claim that we can have the capacity to live in perfection. Many of them, in fact, that would not say that there's very many that do, but that would believe that we'd have the capacity. John Wesley himself claimed uh, that it was possible to eradicate the sinful flesh through good works, and through sanctification. Uh, you say, are you against John Wesley? No, I never even met the man, amen. But he was wrong when it came to that fact. It was impossible, and it's still impossible. The law was given to show us that it's impossible. So the law was not against the promises of God. The law did not put us in a worse position than we were already in. You know, you've heard people say before that rules are made to be broken. And uh, here in another week or two, uh, all the young people, their life is going to be over again because uh, they're going to have to go back to school. And uh, they're going to have to enter back into that environment of rules and of regulations. What Paul is saying is this. He's saying the law did not make your life of worse quality. The law did not make you a sinner. You were already a sinner before God. The law was just given to show you that you were a sinner. If you could have gotten to heaven by your own good works, then you could have done it by the law. But there's no means, no way, no capacity that that could ever happen. Look what it says in verse number 22. But the Scripture hath concluded all under sin. Now, why can it say that? Because we've all sinned. We're all under sin because we all have sinned. Uh, now, I'm not trying to misspeak here. I understand that we sin because we're sinners. I'm aware of uh, our sin nature. Uh, but it's abundantly clear that we are under sin because we evidence it in our lives through the breaking of God's law. Uh, I'm thankful that the law has been done away with in Jesus Christ, but now listen very carefully to what I'm about to say. The law still exists for the purpose for which the law was given. The law still exists for the purpose for which, or for one of the purposes at least, for which the law was given. Even as Gentiles, and the book of Romans talks about us having a law in and of ourselves and unto ourselves, uh, that even we know that we're sinners before God, even if we had never read the law. But understand that the law still shows sinners that they're sinful. 
The law still functions in that way. I'm aware that we have grace in Jesus Christ now. But the law is not given uh, for those uh, that are out from under the law, those that have been saved by grace, but for those that are under the law. And who's under the law? Those that are under sin. And the Bible has concluded all under sin. Uh, the Scriptures still conclude sinners to be sinful. And the law was given. The Gentiles already knew they were under sin. But God had a purpose and plan for His elect and, uh, uh, people, the Jewish nation, but lest they believe that those earthly promises could attain to them heavenly salvation, he gave the law uh, that it might show them that they too were sinful. The Scripture hath concluded all under sin. For what purpose? That the promise by faith of Jesus Christ might be given to them that believe. We said a moment ago that no man comes to Jesus and gets saved except he knows he's a sinner. The Jews had to be concluded under sin if they would ever come to the Savior. You and I as Gentiles, we had to be concluded under sin if we were to ever come to Jesus uh, as our Savior. It was necessary that the law be given to show us our sinfulness. It says, but before faith came, we were kept under the law. Now, we're going to talk about some dispensational truths here that are very, very important. As Paul speaks of this, he says, before faith came, we. And he's speaking of the Jews. He's saying, we were kept under the law, shut up under the faith, which should afterwards be revealed. Wherefore, the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ, that we might be justified by faith. Now, when we think of that term schoolmaster, we think of a teacher. And it's very true that that does reflect the idea of a teacher, and in fact, the, the uh, English word pedagogue comes from this same word. There's no question that the idea of a teacher is conveyed here. But a schoolmaster was much more than just a teacher. And in fact, a schoolmaster at this time would have been one of the slaves, one of the servants in a household that was charged with the task of seeing to the affairs and to the needs of a child until he came to an age of being able to care for himself. He would be the one that would uh, take the child from one place to another. He would be the child that would guard, or the, uh, the person that would guard that child from danger. His job was to protect him until he could get to the place of his own understanding. So you remember I said a moment ago uh, that the law was given to guilt, but the law was also given to God. And just as schoolmasters in ancient days would be tasked with protecting that child from any harm or danger that may come his way, as Paul speaks of the Old Testament Jews and the dispensation of the law, I believe he's conveying to us this truth, that God was also trying to protect the Jewish people from the paganism and hedonism that existed in the day that they lived in. Certainly there were times when the law could not do that because man still makes his own choices. But there's a reason that all through the Old Testament, so many uh, of the practical or civil laws that are given uh, are contained in the thought that they need to abstain from contact with Gentiles. Uh, again, these are dispensational truths. Uh, not a question of how God's going to lead the Gentiles into salvation, you understand, because the Gentiles, they already know they're sinners. Uh, the Gentiles, they're going to look to Jesus Christ in faith, uh, the Gentiles don't have this superiority complex. Now, I'm not saying there haven't been people groups throughout culture that have done that and been that way, but certainly they did not receive that superiority complex 
from some misguided notion of their relationship with God. But the Jews, because of their pride and self-will, did have this superiority complex. They were putting their confidence in the works of the law. And Paul is saying that the law was not given for the purpose of saving you, uh, but the law was given, number one, to show you that you were a sinner, but number two, to guide you or to guard you away from these Gentile nations to maintain you somewhat pure and separated until the time that Jesus Christ should come. As you read through the Old Testament law, you'll be struck by how many times that the word unclean is used. Over and over and over again, hundreds of times in the Old Testament, the word unclean is used. And it's as though, as you read through it, almost everything was unclean to the Jew. Uh, certainly, our modern dietary laws, we'd be having a rough time, amen? Uh, the main thing that keeps me from ever being ensnared in Judaistic legalism is just having to do without bacon, amen? I couldn't imagine that. I just, I'd just die instead, amen? I'd just be a Gentile, I'll be a dog, and, and eat my bacon, amen, rather than uh, being a Jew and do without it. Uh, but the reason God gave all these things is because there is some validity and some truth to those things. I, I do not believe, I, I know that there's uh, some that try to hold strictly to Old Testament dietary laws. God bless them for doing that as long as they're not believing that to gain them any merit before God. If they're just doing it as a health means, uh, God bless them, that's wonderful because there are health benefits to it. God did do those things for the benefit of His people. And certainly, as He gave them commandments to abstain uh, from interaction with the pagan nations, uh, certainly we can see the benefit uh, and uh, the, the uh, progress that God was trying to make in their lives through that. I mean, even a pagan philosopher understood this truth, that birds of a feather flock together. That who you surround yourself with will determine very much who you are. And you'll find all through the Old Testament that any time uh, that the nation of Israel began to intermarry with pagan nations, it wasn't long before they were passing their children through the fires of Moloch. It wasn't long before they were tearing down, uh, you know, their, their places of uh, true biblical worship and trying to set up groves and set up, uh, you know, idols and things of that nature. So the law definitely has that practical benefit. And uh, you say, preacher, why is that important? Because there's two sides of the ditch that everybody wants to get on. There's a small group that wants to get on the side of the ditch of observing the law as an Orthodox Jew would. Uh, as far as denominations are concerned, Seventh-day Adventists would be the main and chief ones uh, that do this. But I even know uh, many people that would claim to be Baptistic in their beliefs uh, that still believe it's right to observe many Old Testament ordinances and uh, commands that are given. Uh, let me say to you that there's no question that the ceremonial law was completely abolished and obliterated in Jesus Christ. The handwriting of ordinances that was against us, that was contrary to us, the book of Colossians says, was done away, was taken out of the way, was nailed to his cross. Listen, I, I, don't, I, I, I don't believe we ought to be doing anything sinful on uh, Saturday, but I'm under grace, friend. Uh, the Sabbath has no hold over me. I worship on the Lord's Day, amen, because that's the New Testament uh, command that's given upon the first day of the week. Let me share this with you. This ain't got to lick anything to do with Galatians, but it blessed my heart. And, uh, and I got the microphone, so we're going to do that. But do you know that even the Old Testament Sabbath was a picture uh, of man's inability to please God through his own good works? You find that man was to labor in his own strength for six days. Then after he had done his own good works, 
He was given a day of rest. But do you know that the New Testament Lord's Day is a picture of grace to you and I? Before we've ever done a thing for God, God gives us a day to rest, to meet with Him, to worship with Him. Even that in and of itself is a picture of how we have been delivered from the Old Testament law. But now listen, because there's a whole lot of folks on the other ditch than there are on that one. There's some folks that would tell you that everything before Matthew is senseless and needless. One of the things that I will always hear people say is they'll say this. They'll say, well, that's in the Old Testament. Well, listen, there's a lot of things in the Old Testament that we need. Amen? I've heard people often say, well, Jesus never said anything about uh, homosexuality or the Bible word for that's sodomy. And it's true, Jesus never said anything about sodomy. Uh, but he, came, he said, I'm not come to destroy the law, but to fulfill it. Just as it was an abomination in the Old Testament, it's an abomination in the New Testament. The book of Romans is very clear about sodomy. Uh, and there's other places in the New Testament where it speaks about those sins of the flesh uh, and sins of lust. Uh, but listen, just because it's in the Old Testament, that don't mean we mark it out with a big sharpie and throw it away. And even much of the ceremonial law taught to us a biblical principle. I've had people say this, you know, and I'm not going to fuss and fight and feud with people over, uh, you know, britches or, or this or that or the other. Uh, but I've heard people say, you know, uh, the Bible does say that a man's not to wear that that pertaineth to a woman and vice versa. And I've had people say this, whoa, preacher, that's Old Testament. Very true, it is Old Testament. And I've heard some people say, oh, preacher, that very same chapter speaks of not mixing different types of fabric. And it does speak of that. But may I remind you that that piece of ceremonial law did teach us a spiritual, moral, biblical principle. And that is this, that Satan's design has always been to, uh, to blur gender lines. Now, I'm not going to argue with you about whether, you know, slacks or women's slacks or men's slacks or this, that, or the other. I've I got, I got more important things to be preaching about. Amen? Don't you believe that? But I will say this, that uh, what I believe that principle is teaching us is that men ought not to be effeminate and that women ought not to endeavor to be masculine. I don't expect it to be popular, but I know it's still biblical. Again, if you, listen, if you, if you think I'm fussing at you over anything that you're wearing, then your mind's already off in carnal left field. I'm on a different spiritual plane than that. I'm not talking about what you're wearing tonight. What I'm saying is this, that people want to say, oh, that's Old Testament, throw that away. No, it teaches us a principle. It teaches us a truth. And the same thing is true about the mixing of those different cloths. That was teaching us the idea of separation. That God's people, even in the most basic elements of their life, and even in the most minute details, are to be a separated people. What I'm saying tonight is this. The Old Testament was given to guard God's people. And I'm not advocating that we start growing curly uh, cues down the side of our head. I'm not advocating that we start living like Old Testament Jews. But I am advocating this, uh, that all those things in the Old Testament, they were written for our admonition. And we better be careful about trying to cut everything in our Bible before Matthew uh, out because there's a lot of things God teaches us through it. It was given to guard us. Aren't you glad that's done? Amen. Ain't smile at me again. But then notice this. Another purpose that that schoolmaster was tasked with was taking him to his teachers and guarding him until the time would come. And it kind of segues into chapter 4, and I can tell you right now we're not going to get into chapter 4 tonight. But I do want to read this, uh, these verses because it teaches us this truth. 
Now I say, chapter 4, verse 1, Now I say that the heir, as long as he is a child, differeth nothing from a servant, though he be lord of all, but is under tutors and governors until the time appointed of the father. Even so we, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world. But when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his Son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. Now, if the Lord will help us to next week, we're going to talk about this a lot. But I will say this, that in Old Testament times, uh, a child, and he might be the heir to a fortune, but until he came to a certain age, he was treated as a servant. I grew up like that. Did you? <laughs> Amen. My, uh, my first name growing up was Get Me, uh, and most of the time my last name was Cup of Coffee. <laughs> And I spent all my time at the microwave growing up getting Mama and Daddy cups of coffee and anybody else. They'd pull people off the street just so I could get them a cup of coffee. They thought I was standing around with nothing to do. But it was very common for the father to appoint a time in which he would go uh, to the public forum. It would be the equivalent today of a courthouse. And he would write that, uh, that child in, not just as a child, but as an heir. That child was always the heir. But now the Father is saying they have come to an age of understanding in which they no longer have to be under tutors. They are now prepared to have a relationship with me as their Father, with them as uh, my heirs, in which they have entered into the fullness of everything that I uh, will give them. Uh, they have come to this age of responsibility. Part of the job of that schoolmaster was to watch that child until that age came. In a sense, he was trying to raise that child they were ready to enter into that place. Now, we know that this is not speaking of some sort of progressive revelation that a believer in a New Testament age of grace has. In other words, you're saved and then you progress along until you get to this place. Because what was the fullness of time? What happened when the fullness of time came that it's speaking of? God sent forth His Son made of a woman made under the law. So this is speaking about uh, God's relationship with His people, uh, not just in the sense of your personal relationship with God as you grow, but in a dispensational sense. Through the Old Testament, they were treated just as that child was. They were treated as servants. Do you remember when Christ said this to His disciples? He said, Henceforth, I call you not servants. For the servant knoweth not what his master doeth, but I have called you friends. For all things that the Father hath made known unto me, have I made known unto you. Uh, so what he's teaching is that there has a change uh, uh, has taken place in our relationship with God from the Old Testament law uh, to the New Testament relationship. There's a lot of things we could talk about about that change. Uh, I certainly believe that the chief, uh, the chief change that has happened between Old Testament saints and New Testament saints uh, is found in uh, verse number 6 of chapter 4. And because ye are sons, God hath sent forth the Spirit of His Son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. We are now indwelt by the Holy Ghost. Uh, you understand that we, no matter what our level of brilliance or academia, no matter what our level of wit or religious uh, you know, learning, we don't have the capacity in and of ourselves to live right and to do right. But we have been given uh, the Spirit of His Son that indwells in us. So we no longer have needs of being under these weak and beggarly elements, as Paul's going to call them in a moment. They have guided us to Jesus Christ. Certainly, as the Jews were concerned, the law was given for that purpose, not only to guilt them and to guard them, but to guide them to their need of Jesus Christ, to show them that they could not do it 
in and of themselves. As I said a moment ago, the law still does this. The law still shows us what God's standard of holiness is. I don't know about you, but I don't believe we've lost a bit of this Bible that God wants us to have. I believe we still have the same truths concerning the Old Testament law that God handed down on Sinai. Uh, there are some people that say, well, you know, preacher, we need the originals. Well, here's the problem with the originals when it comes to the Old Testament law. Moses took through them on the ground, busted them to pieces. Nobody's ever had the originals of those. Uh, some people would say, well, God rewrote them. No, uh, the Bible teaches us that Moses rewrote those. Uh, that he carried the stones up the mountain and God dictated them uh, to Moses. And so those originals written by the finger of God, they're gone. Uh, they've been gone ever since Moses came shortly off the mountain. Uh, so the idea that we have to have the originals, I mean, that's out. And I know that's not what I'm teaching on, but I just can't help it sometimes. I just, you know, when you preach the Word of God, you wind up preaching the whole counsel of God. There's a lot of things preachers deal with if they preach the Bible, amen? If they preach the whole counsel of God, there's a lot of things they get to. Uh, they wouldn't have to preach on John 14 every service, amen? If they just get in their Bibles uh, and preach all the way through it, you'd hit a lot of things that God's children need. Uh, so the Old Testament law uh, was given for this purpose, that the Jews might be aware of their sinfulness of their need of Christ. Wherefore, the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ, so that we might be justified by faith. Here we see the dovetailing of the covenant of grace that God made with Himself and the covenant of the law that God made with the nation of Israel. And what is that dovetailing? Uh, it, the dovetailing is not that the covenant of grace was to sustain them for a short while until the law would come that would teach them to live right. But here was the dovetailing experience. Here was the harmony of it. The promise was given. And until that promise could be fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ, the law was given so that mankind might be aware of his need of that promise when it came along. And then here comes Jesus Christ. He is that promise. They've become exceedingly aware that they, through their own good works, cannot please God. They know their good works are not enough. They know their righteousness is insufficient. And then the Bible says that Jesus Christ is the end of the law to righteousness to everyone that believes. Here comes Christ along. There's the cross. There's the Savior. There's one whom they can put their faith in and trust in so that it's come full circle. We began, let's see, how do I want to do this? Do I want to go this way or that? We'll go this way, amen. Uh, we began back here with the promise. And uh, the promise was made saying right down here is going to be uh, the Messiah, the promised seed. But until that time comes, we have this period of Old Testament law. And you get all the way down to the end of it, and the Jews say, we can't do this. We're uh, incapable. We can't save ourselves. And then they run headlong into the Messiah, one that can redeem them, one that can save them. And we have that beautiful word used in verse 24, that we might be justified by faith. The law was given to exhaust our confidence in ourselves and in our good works so that we might turn to faith in Jesus Christ. It says, verse 25, But after the faith has come, we are no longer under a schoolmaster. We've entered into that which God has intended for us. For ye are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. Now, why is this important? Why is that phrase? For ye are all the children of God. He's been talking about the Jews, you understand. The Galatians were not Jews. I mean, I'm sure there were some Jewish people in that body. Uh, it would not be uncommon in that time for there to have been some. Uh, but by and large, the Galatians are Gentiles. And what Paul is saying is this, just as he said in verse 22, but the Scripture hath concluded all under sin. He's saying God has condemned us Jews. God has condemned us Gentiles. 
that we might all become the children of God through faith in Jesus Christ. Paul is not teaching universalism, uh, and that's uh, pointed out by what he said the uh, prerequisite is for being a child of God, by faith in Christ Jesus. He's not saying everyone is a child. He's saying everyone that puts their faith in Christ Jesus is a child of God. Now, isn't that what the Bible says in the book of John? But to as many as received him, to them gave you power to become the sons of God, even to them that believed on his name. So it says in verse 27, For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Now, Paul is going to segue, after a few short verses in chapter 4, into talking about the, the spiritual sanctification of the life of the believer. Let me say to you that the word sanctification is, is not a bad word. Uh, when we say sanctification, we don't mean salvation uh, by our good works. Sanctification uh, has two basic meanings to it. The word literally means to set apart for a specific purpose or cause. And if we've been saved, we have been set apart from this world. But then sanctification in a practical sense is that uh, process, uh, at least as it relates to the practical sense of the word, that process through which the Holy Spirit uh, is uh, changing us and cleansing us and making us more like Christ. He's going to begin to talk about this exercise of the Spirit. But before he can do that, he must first bring us back to this idea of justification. He must help us understand that we literally stand in Jesus Christ. The law was given to bring us to Jesus Christ. But if we've been baptized, now some of you would say, Preacher, do you mean water baptism? No, I don't mean water baptism. I believe that water baptism is the scriptural mode of the outward ordinance of baptism. I believe that baptism by immersion is the scriptural mode of the outward ordinance of baptism. But understand that there are two baptisms spoken of in the Scripture. There is certainly the outward physical uh, water baptism, but then the Bible speaks of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. We create some real doctrinal problems when we try to do away with the baptism of the Holy Spirit and make that water baptism. Oh yes, it does lead us into believing that our little church and our little clique and our little group is the only one out there but it's caused a whole world of hurting when it comes to theological problems because then that would mean that each local pastor has the capacity to withhold entrance to the body of Christ. Uh, now, some of you don't know why I'm saying that. And some of you all do know why I'm saying that. But that's important for us to understand that the spiritual baptism that's spoken of uh, in books First and Second Corinthians is not a water baptism. That is a spiritual baptism that takes place by the Holy Ghost into the body of Christ. This is what Paul is talking about. He says, we have been baptized into Christ. We have put on Christ. The law was given to lead us to Christ, but here we are. We're in Christ. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. There's no need for us to go back under the beggarly elements of the law. They have served their purpose. For those of us that have been saved, the ceremonial law and uh, even the civil or practical law as it pertains to our standing with God... Uh, that has been done away. There's no reason to go back to that. Again, I'm not advocating we tear out everything before Matthew. I've spent a lot of time laboring that we shouldn't. But it reflects nothing of our standing with God. Oh, uh, I don't have to observe the Sabbath day uh, to please Jesus Christ or to please God. I'm in Christ. And Christ pleases God. Uh, I don't have to, uh, you know, uh, to, to grow out the, the curly cues on the side of my head. I don't have to keep the feast of unleavened bread to please God. I'm in Christ, and Christ pleases God. 
So this idea and truth of justification is vital to the liberty that we have. Verse 28 says, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither bond nor free, there is neither male nor female, for ye are all one in Christ Jesus. Now, let's examine that verse. That's important. Because obviously, Paul is not saying there is no distinction between these things. Uh, you know, there is still in this day that we live in, Jew or Greek. Uh, I, I'm not Greek, but that word Greek encompassed the entire Gentile world uh, at that time. That was the word that they had used. And I certainly am not Jewish. There certainly are still Jewish people. Uh, certainly, uh, you know, I, I would like to think that I'm free. I'm not bond. I don't know. Maybe you better ask the, you know, the mortgage people about that. But I, I'm not in prison, and I am not owned by anyone other than the U.S. government. So, I, you know, there's neither bond uh, nor free, but there is still that distinction. Uh, now, again, we're, we're getting into some funny ground here, but I'm thankful there's still male and female. Amen. I know the world would have us to believe there's not, but there is still male and female. So what is Paul saying? Paul is saying that each and every one of us will put our faith in Jesus Christ. We can have the same standing with God. We don't have to be a Jew. Being a Greek doesn't hurt us. Uh, I, I personally believe when he's talking about bond, he's, he's also talking about the bondage of the Old Testament law. And certainly we don't have to be under the Old Testament law. Uh, we can be free and still be in Christ. Uh, there's no question that there were, me and Brother John was talking about this just a little bit, uh, in another sense before the service or the Bible study started tonight, uh, but certainly there were certain offices that were shut up uh, to the female gender in the Old Testament and uh, were not under the Old Testament anymore. Now, the Bible has its own guidelines. I'm not advocating women preachers, amen. Uh, I'm not advocating effeminate men preachers either, but uh, I'm merely saying that through Jesus Christ, we can all have this same standing. We can all have this same standing. Why is that? And if you be Christ, then are ye Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. I want to end with this simple truth and thought. Paul has taken us full circle. He's not talking about Sinai in verse 29. He's not talking about the law. He's not talking about ordinances. But he comes all the way back to that promise that God had made Abraham many, many years ago. He shows how that God used the Old Testament law to break the pride of the Jews, so to speak, to show them their inability. But he says the end result is this, that we're all guilty before God, but that God's grace is extended to all of us if we'll simply call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're Christ. We're part of that, era, that uh, promised seed. We're part of that inheritance if we put our faith in Him. We don't have to keep the law to please God. We're in Christ. The law was given us to bring us to the place where we knew we couldn't please God. We're in Christ. The law was given to bring us to the place where we'd look for a Messiah. You've been saved. You've found the Messiah. That purpose through which the ceremonial Old Testament law was given has fulfilled its purpose. It's done that. God has sent His Son when the fullness of time was come. And we have received His Spirit and been made heirs according to His promise.